2 Corinthians 6 is where we'll be starting a new chapter in this marvelous book, my favorite New Testament book, 2 Corinthians. We just finished my favorite chapter of the Bible. Oh man, what a great, great chapter, 2 Corinthians 5, and now begin chapter 6, looking at the first seven verses today, Lord willing, is where we'll make it. How about I... um, Read again verses 1 through the middle of 4, and then uh, I'll open with a prayer. 2 Corinthians 6.1 And working together with Him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this opportunity today to study this amazing word that you've given us. Help us to focus, and we ask together that I would not get in the way of your word this morning, but that your word would be clear to your people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul is pleading with this wayward congregation. That's what we keep seeing over and over in this book. There are times he breaks to make some amazing theological statements and to endeavor to explore some deep theological truths. But over and over and over again in this book, through this letter, he comes back to this big idea that he has with uh, this purpose of writing, that they as a whole as a congregation, would be reconciled to God and therefore reconciled to Him as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Many of those Corinthians had been led to believe that they should reject Paul and his ministry. And so Paul feels as though he needs to make it personal with them, as he needs to, that he needs to continue to plead with them to be reconciled both to God and to Him. And we looked last week at the ministry of reconciliation, how we as Christians are ambassadors for Christ, that we all have this ministry of reconciliation to go out to the world proclaiming the good news. But we also saw last week that Paul is begging them on behalf of Christ, Paul and his missionary companions, are begging the Corinthians to be reconciled to God. And Paul now elaborates on that a bit and says here at the start of chapter 6 that having the ministry of reconciliation makes us co-laborers with God. You see that in the first phrase of chapter 6? We work together with Him. We are God's cooperative assistance, you could say, in the work that He's doing in the world. He's saying that we're working with God to tell even other Christians to embrace God. We're working together with God, of course, to reach the world, but in Paul's case, with his missionary companions, they are writing to this church and saying, we are working with God to beg you to be reconciled to Him. Now, if you're using the New American Standard Bible, you may notice that there in verse 1, that phrase, with Him, is italicized, working together with Him. When something's italicized that way, that means it's not in the original language. It's not in the Greek. So this is a case in which the phrase just says, as it says in the New English translation, the NET, now because we are fellow workers, it just kind of leaves it at that. But the translators of our Bible, or at least the one I'm using today, the translators decided to put the words with him in there. It's kind of to explain what that means, to be working together. We are God's co-workers. There are some who take the view that Paul is saying, working together with you all, Corinthians. But the context seems to indicate that Paul is saying he's a co-worker and his companions are co-workers of God himself. And of course, Paul is speaking to them as a special co-laborer of God. He's not just like anybody else. He was an apostle. And as an apostle, he had an authoritative voice to write to this church with the very words, the very commands of God. Perhaps you remember back in his first letter, as we have it, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul tells them, 
What I write to you, they're the very words, commands of God. Paul had that special authority from God as an apostle. So in chapter 5, as we finish chapter 5, Paul was explaining the gospel to them anew in no uncertain terms. And now he's referred to his position that they are working together with God as co-laborers or co-workers of God. And in this, in verse 1 of chapter 6, he now urges against vanity. This is a very interesting verse. Paul writes to them saying, do not receive the grace of God in vain. Now, we just have to pause there for a while and wonder what this could mean. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Well, the first thing we have to figure out is exactly who Paul is talking to. It doesn't do just to say he was writing to the church. Of course, he was writing to the church. But is he talking to believers in the church, or is he talking to false teachers or unbelievers in the church? And those, of course, are the two possibilities. All people in the world, in God's great census, fall into two categories, believers and unbelievers, those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. So as Paul is writing this, is he talking to those in Christ or those outside of Christ? I think there's something that we can get actually from both of those explanations, so I want to walk through that and then just let you decide on your own, but I'll tell you what, what I think it is. Well, let's first start with the unbelievers. Perhaps Paul is saying to the unbelieving people in Corinth who have crept into the church not to receive the grace of God in vain. This is Paul being unsure about whether or not some of these leading voices in Corinth were actually saved. Now, remember, at the start of this letter, Paul does call them God's church. So the presence of unbelievers wouldn't tarnish the whole group, and the whole group wouldn't be characterized just by the presence of some unbelievers. But we do have to recognize, of course, that every church will have a mixture of believers and unbelievers. Hopefully, the percentages are heavier on true believers than unbelievers, but we would be fooling ourselves to pretend that every church of God was 100% filled with people who were born again. That's just not the case. And so, in this view, Paul would be writing to those specifically who had not yet believed. They had received information and spiritual influence, but they had done so without believing. Remember our Lord Jesus Christ, He taught us that the tares will grow up among the wheat, right? In the harvest, you won't just have 100% pristine wheat, but you'll have these weeds that come up. And I think that illustration applies to every age and every group where Christians, where believers are gathered, you'll have some mixed in who aren't true believers. So we must be aware of this sad reality as God's church. There are actually ramifications to this. There are consequences to this of people who have been around the grace of God, who had received more information, who had experienced more grace because of God putting His people around, and yet they don't believe. And yet they, perhaps you could say, receive the grace of God in vain. There are big consequences to this. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 10, when he was pronouncing some woes to some cities, in Matthew 10, starting in verse 14, we'll also look at chapter 11. He said, whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, speaking to uh, the disciples, as you go out of that house or city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Wow, in the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for some. What an interesting concept. Chapter 11 of Matthew, so the next chapter Jesus Jesus teaches, starting in verse 20, he says, he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done. Notice what's happening in these cities most of Jesus' miracles. But these people did not repent. Verse 21, "'Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. 
For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Verse 24, Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Three times in two passages, in back-to-back chapters, Jesus talks about being more tolerable in the day of judgment for certain people. Well, what was the difference? The difference was the particular manifestation of God the Son working miracles, evidenced right before their eyes, yet they did not repent. He says Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented. That the fiery sulfur that came down, the fire and brimstone, it wouldn't have happened. They would have remained to this day, Jesus taught. And so, I think the same principle applies in the church for those who remain, those who are around and yet never believe. That has consequences, doesn't it? There are serious ramifications for this because they have been exposed to the grace of God in a profound way. They should not take lightly the kindness of God. Paul brings this up in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He talks about those taking lightly the kindness and the patience of God. Their judgment is coming. And who has more experience with the patience of God than those who have been in fellowship with His people coming to understand the truths of God and His Word and yet haven't repented and they're still breathing? God's pretty patient, isn't He? God's pretty kind, isn't He? He gives more time. And this, of course, becomes a real concern in any church conflict. It would make sense that Paul would bring this up, speaking to the unbelievers here, because in any kind of conflict in the church, there's always this chance that perhaps the people that you're dealing with aren't actually believers. And that could very well be what Paul is thinking here. In fact, later on, the very last chapter of this book, 2 Corinthians 13, consider what he says in 2 Corinthians 13.5. He goes to end this letter by telling the Corinthians this, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. Those are strong words, very strong words to write to the church. He was uncertain about the spiritual status of many of them, it appears. He had no omniscience just because he was an apostle of God and could speak for God in writing these letters. That didn't make him all-knowing, did it? And so he tells them, test yourselves. So that's one view about what it could mean to receive the grace of God in vain, to be an unbeliever around in the church of God, hearing the oracles of God as pronounced through His Word, understanding the gospel of grace being directly affected in your life experience by the gospel of grace, yet never believing. The other view would be believers, that Paul would be writing to believers themselves saying, don't receive the grace of God in vain. These would be the believers whose spiritual growth has been stunted, those who have a true confession, those who have truly been born again, and yet they're not growing anymore. Those who are like almost in chains because of the distractions of this world, and they are no longer bearing fruit for God. And it does seem to me, I'll go ahead and tell you, I kind of take more of this view here. I think this is more of what Paul had in view. Because Paul really struggled with believers in Corinth, I think. There were those who, of course, were false teachers, those who were the so-called super apostles. And I think Paul wanted them to just go away. That kind of seems the way Paul talked about them. He didn't really have much relationship with them and didn't seem like there was an avenue for relationship. But in between Paul, a true apostle... And these false apostles was like this middle group of people that they're fighting over. And I think Paul is urging that people, that group, these Christians to turn away from the false apostles and to embrace his message. Those who perhaps didn't want to hear this from Paul. Because one thing you'll find in life with those who reject godly teaching, whether they're unbelievers or believers actually, who are in whatever kind of mode they're in, just wanting to hold on to their sinful ways, you'll find that they don't really like someone confronting them. Right? Perhaps in your own life you can testify to this. How much do you like being confronted about anything? (laughs) Let alone something as serious as your lifestyle. Let alone something as serious as 
You're transgressing the commands of the holy, eternal Creator. It's almost like a stagnant pond. A stagnant pond is so tranquil, so peaceful. I love water. I love being around ponds and lakes and all of that. But those dormant, stagnant ponds can produce some of the most wicked diseases, can't they? We know about those algae blooms around here. We know about that and how that stuff can develop, and it's lethal. It can kill. And so it's, it's like Paul's talking to these people, and he's bringing in all of his aeration equipment and, and everything else. He's wanting to pour life into this church and stir them up. And perhaps some of them are thinking, well, we're at peace. Stop, don't bother us with this. But there's a disease that Paul is trying to address, and he tells these believers, do not receive the grace of God in vain. Those who were truly saved, but just not bearing any fruit. Paul had just talked in the last chapter about the judgment seat of Christ. In chapter 5, verse 10, he reminded them that we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And these would be those believers who were on a path at this time to have a lot of fire, a lot of things go up in flames during that Bema seat judgment. In his other letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about how in that judgment, everything's going to be tested with fire. And only that which is done for God, only things that are done with pure motive in faith will remain. And these would be Christians who at that trial would be smelling a lot of smoke. There would be a lot of, a lot of wood and hay and stubble going up in flame. So Paul urges these believers don't receive the grace of God in vain. Don't turn the grace of God into emptiness. That's what that word vain means. It would be what faith is without the resurrection. Remember that in his first letter? Without the resurrection, our faith is in vain. Our faith is empty. What a tragedy it would be for a Christian to turn God's grace into emptiness, into vanity. Well, why does Paul care? Besides being called by God, What's driving his continual involvement with such a stubborn church? I could perhaps say that if I was Paul, I'd be done by now. I'd just be done. I'd give them over to the Lord and say, you know, do with them what you will. I'm going to, you know, mess around in Rome. I'm going to mess around in Jerusalem. Corinth is crazy. That's probably the view I would take. But what motivated Paul to continue going back to the Corinthians? And to urge them not to receive the grace of God in vain, to labor through these 13 chapters to write this letter, surely in tears. What motivated him? Well, I think, and this is something that I didn't see in my, my commentaries, which sometimes makes me nervous, but I feel quite confident of this. I think that Paul truly feared bringing an empty bushel basket to God. Remember, this is a church that Paul planted Acts chapter 18, Paul's in Corinth and the church begins. And I see over and over again in Paul's letters to the churches that he has a fear of starting a work and then it turns out to just be vanity. He desires so deeply to see fruit come from the lives that he's touched. He desires so deeply to see God's grace just take root in a person's heart and for believers to grow up mature in the faith and to bear fruit. And he tells other believers that that's his goal. He tells them over and over again. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, listen to Paul's heart here. He tells them, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Huh, great verse, hard to live, easy to memorize. All things without grumbling or disputing. Verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. Paul's thinking about the day of Christ and them being there, and he can glory in their beautiful salvation, in the fruit that was brought about through their lives. Same thing was written to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 4 and 5, it says, For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. For fear 
that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul was afraid that his missionary service would be nullified by Christians receiving God's grace in vain, by believers not growing, by them having no more effect on their community for the gospel. And so with this view, I think Paul had this keen sense of awareness with the Corinthians that they were struggling and he needed in all ways that he could to bring them to repentance. And he relied completely on the Lord's help for this. As you keep reading in verse 2, he quotes from Isaiah when he says, Do not receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is an interesting cross-reference that Paul brings up here. This is from Isaiah 49, verse 8. That's what he's quoting, the one verse, Isaiah 49, 8. And that verse has to do with the coming Messiah, the Messiah who is going to be sent into the world. And that verse also says that the Messiah would be a covenant for the people. Not only that he would initiate a covenant through his own blood, but that he himself would be a covenant. Behold, you are given a covenant for the people, God says. So Paul quotes this verse where Yahweh is promising to supply help to Jesus Christ and continues to supply help to all those who are in Christ. In the acceptable time, I listened to you, the verse says, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. God's listening and God's help that He would supply to the Messiah throughout His ministry. And that promise now extends to all who are in Jesus that we have the listening ear of God. We have the help of God. On the one hand, Paul is bringing this up, I think mentioning it because he needs God's help as an apostle, as he's dealing with stubborn churches, as he's seeking to bring a fruitful ministry along through this life. He needed that listening ear and he needed the help. And on the other hand, I think he's communicating this to the Corinthians because as believers, they have this promise that God is listening. In the day of salvation, he listens, and now he helps too. On the day of the, or at the acceptable time, rather, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. So Paul hammers it home by telling them, now is the acceptable time. When is the right time for a Christian to repent of known sin? Now. That's the answer. Now is the acceptable time. When is the day of salvation? Now, right? Today. That's the uh, author of Hebrews picks up on today as he quotes Psalm 95 or maybe it's 96. I think it's 95. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Today, if you hear his voice, turn to him whether we're talking to an unbeliever or a believer. And so Paul now, from this point, launches off on an extended expose about how he has always aimed for integrity in his ministry, trying to convince them to embrace him again. He says in verse 3 that in this ministry, he's given no cause for offense in anything. He's given no cause for offense. Corinthians Today is the day of salvation. Repent now. I've not given you a cause to stumble, is what Paul's saying. The gospel, of course, is offensive enough, isn't it? He hasn't added any other charges to his ministry. Surely there will be people who say, well, Paul, he was just too hard of a preacher. Or Paul, he was saying that there's the wrath of God and judgment coming upon those who don't believe. Well, that's just the gospel. That's just the gospel message that you have to turn in faith, to Jesus Christ. And Paul says, there's nothing else that we've added as stumbling blocks. We've given no cause for offense in anything. Just the gospel. And he says, we haven't discredited our ministry either. As he's urging these Corinthians to repent, as he's relying on the help that God supplies, he reminds them, our ministry has not been discredited. You can think of, of course, the opposite of discrediting, which is accrediting, being accredited. Uh, When I was uh, in college, I was a terrible college student, by the way. I was really, really bad. But when I was in college, one of the things that really bothered me was the whole accreditation system. That accreditation system is really kind of a racket. 
I, I learned this as a student while I was in the middle of it, uh, where I got really bad grades, by and large. I got a C in softball. How do you get a C in softball? Uh, but I, uh, I got bad grades because to be an accredited college, they had to assign so many pages of reading per class. That was a part of the deal. Well, what would happen is you'd go to those classes, and at the beginning, you get the syllabus, and here are all the books that we're going to go through, yada, yada, yada. And I found out pretty quick, we're not reading these books. They just assign them because they have to, so they can be accredited, but we're not talking about them in the class. We're not discussing the selected reading for that day. The teacher has his own notes that he's made, and we're going through his notes. We're not talking about someone else's book, and which I liked. I was there because I wanted to hear from this guy I'm paying to hear from. Teach me. You got expertise? Give me your notes. We'll do it. Well, each day uh, there was class, or each week or whatever, they'd send around the little sheet, did you do the reading? Well, you're not supposed to lie as a Christian, and you're really not supposed to lie in Bible college. So, you know, every week, no, I didn't. You know, I didn't do the reading. And that's what really sunk my grades, was I didn't do any of the reading. It's like, why would I do that? We're not talking about it. Bad student. So, as we're thinking about ministering to kids, don't do anything I just did, okay? Or anything I just explained. Don't do any of that. Bad student. And because that, that wasn't really being accredited. That really wasn't a credit. That really wasn't proving anything. And I, in fact, I think that whole accreditation system is kind of a discredit to the whole deal. I think it takes away from the true meaning of what's going on. What Paul here is saying, we didn't discredit ourselves in anything. He's not saying that we've met minimum requirements to become accredited. He's not saying, we've jumped over these particular hurdles that people set up, so you know that we're trustworthy. That's not it. Paul is saying that we have lived lives of integrity. You know us. We know you. We've, we're going to look at next week where Paul says, our hearts have been open wide to you. I mean, what more accreditation could you ask for from someone than to just be honest, open, genuine, sincere, faithful and true. That is where true credit lies. In ministry, the real credit has to do with integrity. MacArthur says in his commentary that a minister is not commended by his seminary degree, theology, popularity, personality, or success. His life is the only letter of commendation that matters, the only one that people will read. It's so true. Paul says, we've given no cause for stumbling. We haven't discredited the ministry. And he says in verse 4, and we have proven ourselves to be servants in all things. This, of course, is the true calling of every Christian is to be a servant. That's like a synonym for Christian. When you say, I'm a Christian, you're saying I'm a slave. All people are slaves of something or another. You used to be a slave of sin. Now as a Christian, you're a slave of Christ, a slave of God himself. You wake up each day with the amazing task of serving the Lord. That's your job description. You, in everything, are a servant. You're a slave for God. So Paul now goes on to the well of personal experience, and he's got a lot of a personal experience here that he can elaborate on these items with. And this shows how serious this is for him. You run your eyes over this, starting in the middle of verse 4, going down to verse 10. Look at this list. It's a list of 27 items. You probably wouldn't have guessed there were 27 things in there. There's 27, kind of like the, the jar of M&Ms. Guess how many there are? 27. And what's fascinating is that he puts them in groups of three. There are nine groups of three. There are like just three things listed that associate with one another and then the next three. And what's even more fascinating than that is that there are like three sets of nine. The first three sets of three, Paul is talking about his tribulations that he's faced in ministry. The next three sets of three, he talks about the spiritual character of himself and the missionary companions. And the final three sets of three, he talks about their reception among men, how they've been received by the world around them. Today, I want to talk about those first two sets of three, Paul and his companions' tribulations and their spiritual character. So let's pick up there in the middle of verse 4 and read through the end of verse 7. Paul says that they've been servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, 
in labors, sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in love, or sorry, in kindness, rather, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Cool list, isn't it? It's, it's got some neat stuff in there. Well, let's dwell on these, uh, not exactly one by one, but we'll slow down and consider this. You'll notice at the top of that list, Paul says that they have commended themselves as servants of God in much endurance, in much endurance. That's kind of him casting out the overall theme of this list before he begins the list. That's not the first item on the list. That's the overall theme. It's the only one here at the start with an adjective. It's the only one here at the start that's in the singular. You notice that the words after are plural, afflictions, hardships, distresses, etc. Much endurance is the overarching theme of this list, and really it's the overarching theme of Paul's life, that he was to be a minister of God with much endurance. And again, from MacArthur's commentary, I really like this quote. He said simply, Ambassadors of Jesus Christ do not seek greater comfort and prosperity, but greater endurance. It's the goal of our lives is to seek endurance in the Lord. Paul doesn't give them this list as a list of things to avoid. Paul doesn't say, yeah, we've been beaten up, we've been imprisoned, we've been you know, shipwrecked and all that. He'll get to all that later in the letter, the specific events that have happened. He doesn't give all that to them to say, don't do what we did. Paul gives them all that to defend his ministry and to just characterize what the Christian life is like. The Christian life is full of hardship. God has prepared us for this. When Paul went on his first missionary journey, he was planting churches in Galatia. And when he came back through, after he got to the end and came back through these same cities where he planted churches, they appointed leaders in every city. And he tells them, that we must enter the kingdom of God through much tribulation. That's the Christian life. And so you don't pray as a Christian to escape this. You pray for endurance, to model faithfulness, to model Christ-likeness. Look at your Savior and the afflictions He went through, the tribulations He went through. It will happen to you too. And so you want to go through these afflictions in the same way Jesus did. So these first three sets of three items Paul gives, starting in verse 4 down through verse 5. Paul is explaining the tribulations, the fact of what has happened in his ministry. And he says they've had many afflictions, hardships, and distresses. These are the general words used to describe the dire straits of missions. Missions work is very, very difficult. For those of you who have not been missionaries and for those of you who have not been to the mission field to witness the work of missionaries, here's what you got to do. Here's an assignment for you. Go see it. Go see it. Go get to know a missionary. If you can't go, shoot them an email. Start subscribing to their emails. They, a lot of them make videos. Pay attention to their videos. Find out what God's people are doing around the world in difficult places to get the good news of Jesus Christ into places that have never heard before. What you'll immediately discover is that this is difficult work. It is extremely difficult work to take the word of, of grace out to a world that doesn't understand the message and doesn't want the message. And imagine Paul as one of the original missionaries, one of the original Christian missionaries, He's going city to city, having afflictions, hardships, and distresses, constantly being put in jams, difficult spots, hard to get out of situations. And those included, look at the next set of three, those included beatings, imprisonments, and tumults. That's a word you don't use very often. We'll come back to that word. I think these refer to the specific tribulations of missionary work in the first century, we still see it around the world today, but less so. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are certainly beaten and imprisoned for their faith. We have Christian churches existing in places like Asia and Africa where the believers have to meet in secret. They call those underground churches. 
for fear of being imprisoned because of their faith. But in the first century, it was much more commonplace, especially in the Roman Empire. Someone could rat you out. Someone could say something to a specific official, and the next thing you know, you're locked away. As a man, you'd be taken away from your wife. You'd be taken away from your kids. As a wife and kids, you'd be left without your protector and provider. It was extremely difficult in the first century. And we can see this in the book of Acts over and over again, but I want us to look at Acts 16. Go ahead and turn with me back to Acts chapter 16, where we see Paul at Philippi. And in this situation, he is described as being beaten and imprisoned as he is performing missionary service there in the first century. Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 22. Acts 16, 22, it says that the crowd rose up together against them and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. They weren't going anywhere, right? So they thought it was a strict command, don't let them go anywhere. So he takes them to the inner prison and he puts them in the stocks. Well, if you don't know what happens next, it's an amazing story where God miraculously rescues them. There's an earthquake and they're freed to go. The jailer is getting ready to kill himself. He's scared. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And you get this amazing verse, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and all your household. That's verse 31. Verse 32, what happens next? They spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very uh, hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Well, that is a great ending to that story. That if you were just a person in the flesh, you didn't expect it. But they believed that, that, would, that God would deliver them. It said that they were singing hymns to God. They lost no confidence in God whatsoever. And God rescued them from where they were. And they were beaten with rods so as to create all kinds of wounds. And this new convert who gave them the wounds just moments later is cleaning their wounds. How, how cool is that? How special is that? So beatings, imprisonments, that was nothing new to Paul. He had experienced it many times over. And he says also in that list, tumults. If we were to uh, have quizzed you this morning as you walked in, what's a tumult? And everyone could write down a definition and put it into a hat. That would have been kind of fun. I could have pulled out your definition because <laughs> that's just a word we don't really think about that often, tumults. Well, that that word means disorder or confusion. It has to do with man-made unpredictability. For something to be stirred up in such a way that the whole situation becomes confused. Again, if you read through the book of Acts, you'll see this over and over again in Paul's ministry where he'll go to a city and you'll have people who cause an uproar. You remember hearing about that in the book of Acts? An uproar is caused. Well, what's the point of an uproar? The enemy uses confusion to take away from the simplicity of the gospel. The enemy uses disorder to take away from the order of the good news. And that's what would happen in these moments. Ephesus was a real famous one. In Acts 19, you had Paul going there to preach the gospel, and these pagans stirred up a huge uproar because they were defending their false god, Artemis. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. And next thing you know, people are running around and being thrown in jail and everything else. It's extremely difficult work to be a missionary, to try to get the message of the gospel across. But not just beatings, imprisonments, and tumults. Paul goes on to say, labors, sleeplessness, and hunger. Well, these still fall in the category of tribulation, but these are self-inflicted tribulations. These are voluntary choices of Paul and his missionary companions as they worked night and day in certain places as missionaries to go sleepless, to go hungry, 
and to work hard with all that they had. All the time God would give them in a day, they used it for His glory, voluntarily sleepless and hungry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 10, Paul is getting a little sarcastic with the Corinthians here because they were, I don't know, treating him unfairly. So he decides that sarcasm is a good tactic to take, which I appreciate. And he says in 1 Corinthians 4.10, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. So even though he's being a bit sarcastic there, he's also inserting quite a bit of truth, isn't he? Poorly clothed, homeless, hungry, treated as the scum of the world, labors, sleeplessness, and hunger. Well, the next three sets of three refer to their spiritual character, and we'll finish with these nine items, three sets of three items, where Paul is continuing to defend his ministry and commend himself as a servant of God, talking about his experiences. When I say spiritual character here as defining these three sets of three, I'm talking about the character that has been preserved by God, by grace, through faith. And Paul describes it initially as purity, knowledge, and patience. He says, in purity, in knowledge, and in patience. To sincerely uphold the truth with patience or forbearance that they were pure. They were pure in the way they conducted themselves. They had a sincerity about them. But they didn't do this at the expense of truth. They were purely and sincerely upholding truth. And they didn't do it in a hurry. They didn't do it angrily. They did it with great patience. They had forbearance in this. Speaking to knowledge that he's talking about here in this list, later in the letter, in 2 Corinthians eleven six, Paul says this to those Christians there. Even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. Kind of sounds a little conceited, doesn't it? Paul's saying, I'm smart. (laughs) And we've proven it to you by opening the Word of God, teaching you the whole counsel of God. He had knowledge, but he wasn't conceited because he says in his defense, and they would know just as well as any other church, that he upheld this knowledge, he upheld this truth with sincerity and with patience. That word patience is an amazing word. In the Greek lexicon, it's not really a lexicon, uh, it's kind of like a, a dictionary, by two guys, Cleon Rogers and Cleon Rogers. It's a father and son. Cleon Rogers the second and Cleon Rogers the third. If, if you haven't thought of a way that you're blessed today, you're blessed that your name's not Cleon, all right? Uh, Rogers and Rogers dis- define this word patience this way. I thought this was a great definition to share. It describes the steadfast spirit which will never give in, which can endure delay and bear suffering. It is used of God's patience towards sinful men and of the attitude which Christians are to display. It refers to a long holding out of the mind before it gives room to action or passion. That's a loaded word, isn't it? But it's a great word. And Paul says that they've shown themselves servants of God in all things with purity, knowledge, and patience. Then he says, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in genuine love. Paul's character and the character of his companions was evidenced by loving people, by showing genuine love toward people. Gentle, spirit-led, Christ-following love that cares for souls. That's what Paul's talking about here. A true kindness and a true spiritual love that cares for the souls of other people. Remember, kindness, as it's listed here, is an aspect of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So when he says, in the Holy Spirit, it's tied together with kindness. We've received kindness. We've been called to pass on kindness. 
We were just looking at in my Sunday school class today, Titus chapter 3, that says, when the kindness of God our Savior appeared, we were saved. The kindness of God appeared in Jesus Christ. And so we've received the kindness of God, and as Christians, we're called to pass on that kindness. It's a command in the New Testament, be kind to one another. And it's interesting that in the New Testament, that word for kindness is often paired with gentleness. The two go together. We are to be kind and gentle, as Paul says he and his team were. And the aim of Paul's entire ministry could be summed up in what he says here after in the Holy Spirit, where he says, in genuine love. Paul wanted all that he did to be done with genuine, sincere love. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes to Timothy saying, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The overarching goal of Paul's ministry was love. True, genuine, sincere love. He tacks on this adjective, genuine, to clarify what he means. Not love as the world loves, but genuine love, which is the only acceptable love. In his letter to the Romans, Paul said in Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. That means that there's a love out there that can be fake. And that's not the love Paul's talking about. He says, we've shown ourselves to be true servants in everything with genuine love. And that's a great goal for all Christians. What, what a powerful combination we're developing here. We're talking about purity, knowledge of the truth, patience, kindness, genuine love, all done in the Holy Spirit. You think you can get a lot done if you got those things going on? I'd say so. I'd say so. Well, let's look at the, the final list of three for today. Paul says, in addition to all of that, they have been servants in everything, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by weapons of righteousness, one for the right hand, one for the left hand. Well, when you go out to do battle, I suppose when I say you there, I'm using the general you. I don't think this will be any of us this week. But when a soldier would go out to battle, you would need a weapon for the right hand and for the left particularly in your right hand, because most people are right-handed, you would have your offensive weapon. In the left hand, you would have your defensive weapon. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul talks about the armor of God, and in that left hand would be that shield of faith. You would need your defense, your shield of faith, and in the right hand, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's so true that a true minister of God will show himself by his weapons. A true minister of God will show himself by the tools that he uses for service. You can kind of judge a true mechanic in the same way, can't you? If you got a tour of a mechanic's shop, you'd know pretty quick if that guy's legit or not. And even me, and I don't really know what I'm looking at. I can tell if someone is like legit or not, okay? Well, Paul here is saying that we have particular weapons And as missionaries, as ministers of the gospel, and even just being a Christian, you have to be well-equipped. You have to have the right weapons for the job. Is your weapon as a Christian, as you go out and do spiritual battle, is your weapon the Word of God, or is it fill in the blank with anything else? Is your weapon the sword that you hold, the sword of the Spirit, as Paul describes it? in Ephesians 6? Or is it a man-made thing? Your man-made devices will not suffice in spiritual battle. Whatever you think up pragmatically, it will not be effective for spiritual service as Christians and particularly as those who are sent out as ministers of the gospel. The tool for service or the weapon has to be the Word of God. The Lord has channeled His saving power through the Word of God. How will they hear without a preacher? And what's the preacher preaching? The Word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. You have to have the Bible as your weapon in battle. Earlier in this letter, Paul expressed this very thing. In chapter 4, verse 2, Paul said to these Corinthians, We have renounced the things hidden because of shame 
not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Christians must know the Word, and Christians must pray for God's power. You see that in the list too? Not just the Word of truth, but the power of God. We have absolute reliance on God in this life. Missionaries being sent out, They can only rely on the power of God because that is what it takes for anybody to be converted. Paul says over and over again to Christians in the New Testament that their faith rests on the power of God. With the Corinthians in particular, he tells them, I didn't come to you with crafty speech, with cunning. I didn't persuade you in human terms to be a Christian. Your faith doesn't rest on me, Paul says. And for any Christian... Your faith does not rest on any other person unless you're including the Lord Jesus Christ. Your faith rests on the power of God alone. And Paul says they've commended themselves as servants in the power of God. And in this way, we're battling with the armor of God as we seek to uphold the Word of God and we pray for God's power. We are commending ourselves in the same way they commended themselves In the example of Paul and the missionaries, we commend ourselves to one another as Christians as we're seeking to do God's work, be instruments in His hand as Christ builds His church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for such a full text with so much information. God, Your Word cannot be exhausted. We cannot reach the bottom of the depths of wisdom and knowledge that You've revealed to us in Scripture through the person and work of Christ. Help us, Lord, to not only know these things that we've discussed this morning, but help us to apply these things by the power of your Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.